Welcome back to The Pilgrim Soul, a podcast about the journey of faith in the world of today. I'm delighted today to be joined by Dr. Steve Barr, who is a theoretical particle physicist who also speaks and writes extensively on science and religion, and he's the founder of the Society for Catholic Scientists. Steve, welcome to The Pilgrim Soul. Good to talk to you. I first encountered your work, actually, when I was back in high school um, through your book, Modern Science and Ancient Faith. And in the years since, you've been a consistent point of reference for me, both in my work on science and religion, but also in my journey of self-understanding as a Catholic scientist. So I'm really grateful to be able to share some of this wisdom with our listeners today and excited to explore a topic that is so central to my day-to-day life. Um, I thought we could set the stage for our conversation with a little bit of background for our listeners who might not be familiar with who you are. Mm -hmm. So would you tell us the story? At at what point did you discover that you wanted to be a scientist and what led you to physics in particular? Well, that's kind of an interesting thing. Um, There was never a point in my life where I actually, I, I don't remember any moment in my life where I was in any doubt about what I would be doing. No kidding. For a living. Right. I I was one of those people who would be called, I guess, a math science nerd as a kid. Mm. I'm, I'm the youngest of four brothers. I would be curled up on my bed reading books of what was called recreational math, you know, puzzles and mathematics puzzles and stuff. While my older brothers were out in the Riverside Park, I grew up in New York City playing touch football and, and, and so <laughs> forth. So I was, uh, I just loved math and, and science, maybe math even more than science. And uh, mm. I just, it somehow it was just destined. I, I knew I was going to be a scientist. I don't, as I say, I don't remember even asking myself ever, not only that, I didn't ask myself what kind of scientist I would be. It was just somehow physics was inevitable. So uh it's kind of a boring story. but uh, No, it's beautiful. Vocation is given. It's given to us and to some people with more immediacy than others. So I really, I really like that. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I believe you're a cradle Catholic. Is that right? Yeah. And the same thing. I, I've been a scientist from maybe from the cradle and a Catholic from the cradle. Yeah. Though, though my father, you know, I didn't find this out until I was about 10 or 11 or something that my father was not Catholic. Oh, really? Well, he eventually did at the age of 79. He eventually came into the church. He was a uh, Jewish by ancestry and came from a rather a strongly atheistic home. And he always described himself to me as a Humean skeptic. Mm. So, But he wanted us to be raised Catholic. He had a great respect for the Catholic church uh, and wanted us to be raised Catholic. So it was his policy not to uh, let us know that he wasn't Catholic until we were old enough to handle it. He didn't want to undermine our our faith. Wow. And so I found out when I was about 10, it rocked my world, you know, because here was a person who was, uh, I greatly revered. Uh, I mean, he was my father and I looked up to him tremendously. And uh, mm-hmm. he was also a brilliant man. And so that I think actually made me think a lot more perhaps than I otherwise would have. About the faith? about the faith and why we believe what we believe and how so on. It's always, I'm the opposite of my father. It's, it's kind of funny. I, I have a very hard time putting myself in the frame of mind of an atheist. That's, the existence of God is so obvious to me, mm. but it was all the other doctrines of Catholicism that I had to work through that, that didn't 
not all of them made sense to me at first. I had questions about them, and I had to work through them. My father was the opposite. He, he said all the teachings of Catholicism made sense to him. It was the existence of God. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so it's not all genetics, I guess. But uh, Exactly, yeah. Yeah, so my, my faith journey, I, I always had faith. Mm-hmm. And I've always believed in the divinity of Christ, the existence of God, the divinity of Christ. But I had a lot of questions growing up about various aspects of the faith. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that. I really admire the journey that that initial certainty and that initial questioning when you were so young has led you down. Not only discovery, but also ownership of your vocation to then proclaim the truths that you verified in your life. And as I mentioned at the start, you know, part of this is leading the Society for Catholic Scientists. And um, one of the things that struck me when I first started graduate school was my need for exactly this, a companionship of people with whom I could share the deepest convictions of my heart, even as we also explored science together. And at first, I was met just sort of with this poverty of any opportunity to answer it, because we don't have a chapter of the Society for Catholic Scientists here, and my lab environment is extremely secular. Um, But I gradually discovered that one member of my lab is actually uh, a Russian Orthodox woman. And this has totally changed my experience of my lab. You know, it's just a, a breath of fresh air to be able to share with her whether it's our, our joy and wonder at the created world or our frustration with the terrible philosophy that pervades a lot of science. And so, yeah, it's been an experience that has made me more grateful for the other Catholic scientists in my life um, who inspire me and accompany me. And and also, you know, the Society for Catholic Scientists, of which I am a member. Right. So I'm wondering if you'd talk about your reason for establishing it and perhaps also touch on the role of companionship and community in your own vocation as a scientist. I'm happy to talk about both of those things. Uh, maybe I can go back again to my childhood. Please. Um, one of the, my passions is to see how things fit together mm. coherently. And that... Uh, made me, it's not a coincidence probably that one of the areas in which I specialized, I'm retired from research now, is what are called grand unified theories, which try to come up with a unified mathematical description of all the forces of nature. Mm. That appeals to something deep in me. But also as a child, I, I wanted to see, well, how the different doctrines of the faith fit together. Because sometimes when I was young, you know, some doctrine would seem sort of extraneous, like wouldn't the faith be simpler without that particular doctrine? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and I wanted to see how these things fit together. And, but also how the things I understood from a science point of view fit together with the things I understood as a Catholic. I spent a lot of my childhood <laughs> and young adulthood thinking about various issues that arose in my own mind. Mm. And there were many of them. And some, a lot of them had to do with science and faith, or just about the faith, or just about science, or philosophical questions. I did that sort of in a solitary way. I mean, I went and read books. If I was puzzled about something, I would sometimes go to the library and get a book out. This is even for college, grad school, mm. and uh, read up on it and, and think hard about it myself. So over time, I started to have a firmer sense of how things fit together. And that's probably so it used to puzzle me, it sort of frustrate me that I would see that there were so many people out there saying science and religion didn't fit together. Mm, mm -hmm. And I didn't think there were enough people out there effectively answering that. Yeah. And so I I kind of ended up, well, somewhat serendipitously writing about it and then speaking about it. 
Now, as far as the Society of Catholic Scientists, I guess I should say I'm a co-founder because there were six of us who started it, but I, I was one of the spark plugs of it. <laughs> and I had thought about for many years forming such a society. And one of my main motivations was exactly the phenomenon that you describe having experienced, mm. which is it's not that when you go into science or into the academic world in general, it's not just science. Maybe it's more even in the humanities, I suppose. It's not that you find much overt hostility to religion or to oneself as a religious person. Mm -hmm. One faces more sense of isolation. So, for example, when I was a grad student and I was already embarked on, you know, particle physics, I could not have named any, and now I can, but then I could not have named a single world famous scientist, physicist who I knew to be a religious believer. No kidding. Let alone a Catholic. Wow. I didn't know if any of my professors at Princeton were religious, many of my classmates. were. So I, I felt alone. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, the thought naturally occurs to you, am I crazy or is everybody else crazy? You know, and of course, it's easier to suspect one is crazy if you're the only <laughs> one thinking something. So it, yeah. it, it, it is unnerving, the sense of isolation. Mm. And that's why I thought what I saw a society of Catholic scientists doing, which is give fellowship among scientists or science students who are Catholic, intellectual fellowship, spiritual fellowship. Mm -hmm. So so that actually was the main impetus for forming it. I'm glad to hear yeah. that it's actually having that effect. It's effective, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. I think I would add to your description of sort of the isolation that we often experience, also the sense of perhaps condescension or, or almost like, this is irrelevant. Why are you religious? That's something something for children. You know, it's cute, it's fine, you can but it's irrelevant to my life. And so your point about unity and touching on these grand unified theories that interest you in physics but then also the unity of life. I think that's such a perfect hermeneutic for unlocking exactly the promise of our faith and how our faith can enrich our work as scientists mm -hmm. because really when you see the unity of life this is the personal relevance of the faith is you can see the coherence of what you're doing at the bench in the laboratory or on your laptop, you know, in statistical analysis, the unity of that with the destiny of your soul and the love that you have for your family. And, and so it's, it's really beautiful to see this principle of unity running through our work and through our lives of faith. Right. And this is, of course, something that I think my colleagues are made for as well, right? So there's, there's almost this sense of giving birth to an evangelical and missionary dimension to it. So I'm wondering, have you had opportunities to share explicitly or implicitly the gospel with your more secular colleagues? What is that dynamic like for you in working in a secular environment? I mean, presumably they know you're Catholic because of all of these right. these other activities that you do. Right. Well, I'm, I just retired two years ago, so I, I don't... Oh, that's right. Yeah. The, the, most of the scientists I hobnob with now are... Catholics. Society, Catholic scientists. <laughs> yeah. But I was in research, you know, for 40-something years. Mm. Uh, in my earlier years, in my earlier years, I was a little afraid to be too overt yeah. about my faith because I wondered whether I might be looked down on, discriminated against, you know, mm -hmm. and it might hurt my career among my fellow students who were my friends, of course, they knew, but they were not going to hold it against me. But I didn't, you know, I, I tell you one episode I remember vividly, my thesis advisor, I won't mention his name because I don't want to embarrass him who's an eminent physicist, and he was uh, Chinese ancestry, 
and brought up in a very Catholic home. I knew that because I knew his younger brother too. Mm. But he, I think he lapsed, though I think he may still believe in God or have some kind of religious belief. But he asked me at a cocktail party once when I was a postdoc. He said, so Steve, uh, when was the last time you went to mass? I, maybe his younger brother told him that I was Catholic. Mm. Mm. And I didn't want to say the truth, which was last Sunday, because I knew that he was no longer a practicing Catholic. And I thought sometimes it's ex-Catholics who are the most anti I didn't know what his attitude yeah. was. And, you know, your thesis advisor is really important in your life. Mm -hmm. And so I deflected the question somehow. And then I remember feeling very guilty about that because every, every time at mass, the reading would be, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my father in heaven. Mm. I, I felt like a dagger had been uh, you know, thrust into my heart. Yeah. And then I would say, oh, well, I rationalize it, but we must be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And I thought this is being shrewd. I have to be you know, practical. Now, over the years, you know, I didn't really wear my faith on my sleeve, but over time, People in my department probably gradually came to know when I was a faculty member. I, at a certain point, I put a crucifix up on the wall of my office. Mm. So then everybody knew. That's a giveaway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so sometimes grad students, uh, I had more discussions about religion, philosophy, and so forth with grad students uh, than with my fellow professors. Interestingly enough, I don't find professors that interested in the big questions. Mm. When you go to lunch with a bunch of physics professors, they're talk, usually talking about restaurants and movies and sports. And you don't get big discussions of cosmic yeah. questions or philosophy. Yeah. But grad students sometimes came in and some of them would be of Christian backgrounds, some evangelicals, some atheists, some Muslims. Mm. Uh, some Muslims who were atheists. <laughs> and I had interesting conversations with them. And that, that's probably most of the uh, overt witnessing person to person that I've done. Yeah. Or people who email me. Once once I got a reputation, started writing and speaking around the country and stuff, then people email me. But Yeah, I've been one of them, so I can attest to that. <laughs> well, I enjoy that. And I always try to give serious thoughtful answers to people, random people that I know I'll never hear from again. Yeah, I, I have had a couple of philosophical discussions with fellow physicists, mm -hmm. uh, but not many, not many serious conversations with peers, with, with other professors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. I think that coheres with my experience as well of graduate school and how that compares to more of an undergraduate experience of science um, and the kinds of questions that are being talked about. And I definitely have to remind myself that a lot of the seeds of evangelical work are hidden and are take place in secret. And, you know, as you mentioned with your father, can bear fruit in something that happens at the age of 79 or 80. Right. Taking refuge in that is helpful for me in sustaining my desire to be to be a witness. One thing you touched on was the interreligious bit that you had students interested in these questions from a huge variety of religious backgrounds. Right. And I I'm fascinated by the fact that this tends to happen, I think, especially among scientists. There's almost this innate religious sense that can drive someone to science, this disposition of, I would almost say, awe and curiosity and sort of an awareness of the givenness of reality that can unite people across religious creeds and bring them to science. So I think this, for me, is a really promising place where science can enrich our faith, no matter what religious tradition you're from. Right. I mean, uh, one of the things that's, that I think is wonderful about science, and I hope it doesn't change, 
is that you have people of all backgrounds, including very different religious, I mean, atheists, Catholics, Buddhists, you know, what have you, mm -hmm. people of different nationalities, uh, cultures, so all working together. So one of a paper that I wrote, for example, having to do with anthropic coincidences, which is one of the few papers I've ever written, which might might say has uh, physics papers, which has some philosophical mm. and religious implications, perhaps. The four authors, one was an, a graduate student from India. I don't know what his beliefs were. One was a rather strong atheist who thinks religion is for the birds. I mean, it's nonsense. And the, and the other was a rather eminent physicist who I think is a practicing Catholic. Mm. And so there you have it, atheists and one or two Catholics and working together on this project. Now, I'm a little worried because I, I see there may be the new atheists, for example, would like to argue that science is intrinsically an atheist enterprise that you have to, yeah. either you're for science or you're religious. And the thing is, what I fear is if those people, those ideologues kind of co-opt science, one of the glories of science is that you can be an atheist or religious and do good science and be respected by your colleagues and because you're all interested in the same science questions. But mm -hmm. if these people have their way, they would probably banish people like me from science and say, you don't belong here. Yes. And that would be a terrible tragedy. Right. Um, impoverishment of culture, really. I agree. I agree. I couldn't agree more. Impoverishment of culture, but also I would say impoverishment of science, yes. because I think a very common mentality that I see in my generation, influenced no doubt by the new atheists and people like them, is this misconception that science is predicated on a materialist worldview. Right. And in neuroscience, but I'm sure other disciplines, this is just comically inadequate for explaining the phenomena that we observe when it comes to the mind and mental processes. And so if you're rooting your science on materialism, you're not going to get nearly as close to studying the truth of reality than if you had a sort of healthy awareness of what science can and can't tell you about what you're trying to study. Um, in my cursory reading of the philosophy of physics, it seems like something might be similar at work in physics when it comes to quantum mechanics. Would you agree with this this sort of assessment? Yes. With quantum mechanics, I think you hit the nail on the head. There are quandaries, philosophical conundrums. Mm. Everybody agrees on the rules, on the mathematics, on the rules of quantum mechanics, how to apply it, how to solve physics problems with it. The theory is very well defined. But there are a lot of philosophical questions of what it implies. Yeah. And there's a famous, really a central issue is something that's called the, the measurement problem. Schrodinger's cat, is it? Yeah, and all that kind of thing. And I am convinced after thinking about this for many years and reading about it, that the problem is intractable if you are committed to physicalism. And I think a lot of physicists unconsciously, almost reflexively, without being aware that they're making materialist assumptions, make those assumptions. And, yeah. and uh, there's a respected philosopher of science, philosopher of physics at Princeton, named Hans Halverson. I think he's a Protestant. He says in one of his papers, if you assume physicalism, mm -hmm. that is that physics is everything, you end up inevitably in the measurement problem. And I think he's right. To break out of the conundrum, you have to accept that mind is something every bit as fundamental to reality as matter. Yeah. But you see, this is a case where having a materialist blinders on really inhibits you. Now, it doesn't inhibit you from using quantum mechanics or doing physics. It inhibits you in understanding philosophically what 
quantum mechanics is telling you about the mm, world. Mm, so the contextualization interpretation of the science, yeah. Right. I think it has more of an effect perhaps in neuroscience because uh, what you're trying to get at is the mind Yeah. through the study of, of the brain. And there, I think you're bound to make oversimplistic assumptions if you are a materialist. Totally. It's inevitable. Yeah. What you're saying now reminds me of one of the things that first struck me about your writing, which is how much you drew on the history of theology and philosophy and how helpful that was for sort of deconstructing and exposing modern objections to faith as actually against straw men or misrepresentations of what we as Christians and as Catholics particularly believe. Correct. Um, what what sort of philosophical challenge then do you think might be more distinctive to our time? Or is it all really just recycled from the past? I think it's largely recycled. So it's interesting. I, I've gone back and started a reading biography or, or looking into the lives of some scientists of the 19th century mm. for something that's on our website. And I noticed that in the 19th century, Catholic scientists and religious scientists we're constantly talking about materialism mm. as the big threat, so to speak, or the mistake that was being made by many other scientists. That, and I, I think that's right. And, that, and I didn't know that when I wrote my book, Modern Physics and Ancient Faith, when I said that the real conflict is not between religion and science, it's between religion and scientific materialism. Yeah. And it turns out that that's also how people in the 19th century saw things, that mm -hmm. materialism is at the root of scientific atheism. You know, in a way that, in a way, I think that's good news because atheism can be appealing, especially to younger people. Yeah. Because it could be seen as liberating. This is what something my father was not an atheist. He was, he said he's not an atheist, he's a skeptic. But he said that there's something liberating about the idea that you're not ultimately answerable to somebody. Yeah. Uh, there's nobody watching you to whom you'll have to give an account of what you, how you live your life. So it could be liberating, but you know, there's nobody who wants to believe that he doesn't have a soul, that he mm -hmm. doesn't have free will, dignity, that he doesn't have, yeah, that he doesn't have a self. Because if you follow what a lot of the sort of more reductionist neuroscientists or, or philosophers of mind and so on say, it's that really underneath that welter of neural impulses and so forth and flickering images in our mind and so forth. There's no unitary in perduring self there. Yeah. That's an illusion. That's complete illusion that we have a self. Uh, of course, who's being, who's suffering from the illusion one way. Exactly. <laughs> but it's an illusion. We don't, we don't have selves. We don't have free will. We don't, in a sense, we don't exist yeah. as we thought we did. And that's not an appealing thought to most people. Maybe because of egotism or something, but nobody wants to believe that he's just uh, a machine or something. Yeah, it's important for people to realize that the, the scientific atheists or the new atheists—they're much more radical than just atheists. Mm -hmm. They don't just deny that God exists; they deny that anything exists that's not just matter in motion, which makes them, I think, both philosophically very vulnerable because there are many powerful arguments that have been made by non-religious philosophers against that kind of view. Yeah. But it also, I think, makes their, once people realize what it is they're really saying, it makes their worldview much less appealing. Yeah, I think you're right. And um, I've always been a bit baffled by the attraction that a lot of my generation experiences to the new atheists and their arguments, because 
I think anyone who looks honestly at their experience can immediately intuit that their claims are patently false. I think there's this sort of disconnect. I mean, as a neuroscientist, I just describe it as straight up cognitive dissonance, but there's a sort of disconnect between experience and ideology that we almost have a difficulty comparing what is proposed to us as the truth of who we are with actually observing ourselves in action. And as soon as right. as soon as you do that, this whole world opens up that finds its, you know, its grand unified theory in faith, in Christianity, in who Jesus of Nazareth says I am. But to get there, of course, I need people to propose that to me. I need this tradition of believers who continues to manifest his presence and and invite me to that. Um, and that reminds me of, to circle back what you were saying about digging into the biographies of scientists who have gone before you. I think that's an invaluable place, both as scientists and as people of faith, to discover the treasures that we can inherit. I mean, I think of in my own projects, my deep dependence on the people who first mapped the neuroanatomical regions that I'm studying, or even the people who one month ago, like, posted the answers to my the bugs in my code online. Like, I'm so dependent on the tradition of scientists. So my question for you would be, who's inspired you and, and what parts of the tradition of faith and scientists for you are most these icons um, for you to follow? Well, to be honest, when that was one of the problems I faced when I was young, is that there was almost nothing written, or at least nothing that I knew about, mm. by scientists uh, defending religious belief. Nothing was out there. Now there, you know, people well like John Pokinghorn, who's an Anglican, and there's uh, myself, and there's a lot of other people writing. Scientists who are Francis Collins, who describes himself as an evangelical, yeah, who are scientists writing about why they believe. Uh, so we're living a much better time. But who are my who is inspiring to me? Well, there are a number of people who have greatly influenced my thinking since I was young. They weren't scientists, but their thoughts have been very helpful to me, in, even in thinking about science, religion and science. Mm. G.K. Chesterton was a very big influence on me from the time I was a teenager. I've read everything I could lay my hands on, which is quite a lot. Um, I was, I've always been profoundly admiring of St. Augustine. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a philosopher, a Jesuit priest named Bernard Lonergan, who I read when I was young. He wrote a long book, which really powerfully affected my thinking, a book called Insight. Uh, it's a long book. And I haven't had the time since uh, in, in recent decades of going back. I always wanted to go back and reread it again. Mm. Fresh eyes. I haven't really read it all the way through since I was like, I don't know, college or something, or maybe even earlier. But he had a big effect. And actually, that was most directly helped me think about science faith issues. Uh, it gave me a sort of philosophical framework to look at a variety of issues uh, mm -hmm. in a sort of indirect way. It was not talking specifically about science faith questions, but the overall framework was very helpful to me. Mm -hmm. So those are some of my heroes, I guess. Uh, within science, I mean, there I have science heroes. I, I'm a hero worshiper, I have lots of heroes. My science heroes are just heroes because I think they were great scientists. Yeah. One I particularly admire was uh, Eugene Wigner, who was a Nobel Prize winner in physics. Mm. I read some essays by him when I was maybe a postdoc or, that had to do with quantum mechanics, and um, they were eye-opening for me. Uh, he was not religious. I think he was an atheist, but, but he argued very forcefully 
that mind was as fundamental a constituent of reality as matter. He was, uh, mm. so he was, he, he's one of my scientific heroes who was also uh, had some influence on my thinking about science faith questions, but there, but there were not very many people. And still to this day, there is a shortage of scientists who can write, who are writing and speaking about how to integrate faith and science in our thinking in, um, I hope as time goes on, there'll be more of them. Yeah. Maybe the Society of Catholic Scientists will contribute to that in some way. I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I totally agree. And I think that is something of what I experience within neuroscience, because in looking for mentors and people who have gone ahead of me within my field, it's such a young field that I still don't have those. I mean, there's Blessed Nicholas Steno, who's a geologist and neuroanatomist from, I don't know, the 17th century, maybe. But in terms of contemporaries, I think there is still a void there. And that's one of the reasons that I've decided to start working in science and religion a bit. Um, But one of the beautiful things that this sort of deficit that I'm confronted with has led me to do is find mentors across science. And so one of my dear friends here in Cambridge, who is an exemplar for me in terms of what it means to do research and what it means to be a scientist is actually a theoretical physicist. Mm -hmm. And it's been amazing to see through our friendship and through other scientists I know here and mathematicians, just sort of commonalities that unite the vocation of being a Catholic scientist, these sort of essential dimensions of our relationship with reality. Is he a Catholic, the physics person? Yeah, she's a, she's a Catholic and um, it's very helpful to be able to go to her and, confront my experience with hers and to follow in her footsteps. Um, But what would you say is the distinctive task of the scientist? So if we're considering across disciplines, what is it that unites us in our vocation? Like, how is it that we're together building the kingdom of God in a distinctive way? Well, I I think the vocation of scientists, I mean, it's twofold. Um, the, The main impulse, I think, is a desire to understand how the natural world works. Mm. It's a desire to understand. And then a second impulse, which is sort of more derivative, I think, is the desire to apply that understanding to very solve various problems and so forth. Mm-hmm. The applied science. Now, there are people who are anti-science, you know, to say, well, science is all about dominating the world and you know, dominating nature and, you know, uh, but it's not. I think the fundamental impulse that leads most people into science, I would think, is simply the desire to understand. I mean, what do what do young people that go into science think about when they're kids? They dinosaurs and yeah, and and astronomy and, Space. and planets yeah. and, and galaxies and things that have no practical application. You know, the Big Bang and black holes and things like that. So it's really a desire to understand the world. The vocation of scientists is to primarily to understand how the natural world works. And for a religious scientist, it is to do that and thereby glorify God. And I think that's one of the, you know, from the time of one of my favorite quotes of a religious scientist is Johannes Kepler, mm. who lived about 400 years ago, who was really one of the founders, one of the first founders of modern science. And he wrote one of his prayers was, I thank thee, Lord God, our creator, that you have allowed me to see the beauty in your work of creation. Mm. He uncovered laws, his famous three laws of planetary motion that nobody had known, no human being had ever known before. And they're very beautiful mathematically. And so he saw himself, and this is the way scientists, most great scientists from that time, 1600 or so, up through most of the 19th century, saw themselves as 
uncovering the beauty of God's creation. Yeah. Not they didn't see themselves as working against religion. Quite the contrary, they were religious themselves. Right. And that I think is one of the things that science, even the science produced by atheists, does. Yeah. You look at the Hubble pictures, go to astronomy picture of the day, a website. Astronomy picture of the day. Every day they have a new fantastic picture that's just awe-inspiring of some astronomical or astrophysical thing. Or pictures from the this is where astronomers and biologists have it all over the yes. physics. You know, the pictures from, from the ocean depths or weird and interesting animals. Neurons. The, the neurons. <laughs> they give you look at those and you're just struck by how beautiful, yeah, strange the world we live in is. And I think that reveals something manifests uh, something of God's glory. I'm going to feel this very abstract and mathematical, but they're in a way that's maybe less accessible. You can't have nice pictures of it usually. <laughs> but you see the, the laws of physics have this, um, say quantum mechanics as a perfect example. You have these laws that are very strange, very subtle, and very impressive mathematically. And it makes you realize something of about God, the astonishing depth of the mathematical ideas upon which the world is built. And one of my favorite scripture verses, uh, every time it's read at mass, it really hits home. I think it's from Isaiah. As high as the heavens are above the earth are my ways above your ways and my thoughts above your thoughts mm. or something like that. And I'm thinking, you know, the, uh, when you study theoretical physics, and you see the depth of the, of the physical laws, of the mathematics, and the strangeness, you realize, yes, this is the product of a mind that is far, far above yes. the human mind. And it gives you a sense of awe, though it's a more abstract connection than you get from wonderful pictures from other fields of physics. But it, 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 that's what I think one of the great things about modern science is, is that despite what some of its practitioners believe it gives glory to God. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing, especially the scripture verse. And and I, I always go back to Gerard Manley Hopkins. The world is charged with the grandeur of God and, uh, and the canticles in Daniel and all these places, because scripture is full of it, you know, full of praise of God's creation and wonder at the place of the human person in the midst of that creation. And right. I'm constantly recalled to this. I mean, in neuroimaging work, it's just stupendous. I really think that the brain is the only thing as beautiful as the stars. Well, I, I saw a picture just recently. I don't know where I saw it on the internet. And it's some amazing picture of neurons with all of their little tendrils yes. intertwining. Apparently, it's a new view of neurons and how truly complex they are and how much they intertwine in, in thousands and thousands of these little tendrils and things. And it, it was kind of jaw-dropping. It was just a tiny, tiny, tiny part of the brain. Yeah. And it was so fantastically complicated. It made me think they're never going to figure out yes, it's how true. the human brain works. It's just, it's true. It's just too complex. Yeah. It's, it's, it's sort of like these neural networks. You know, you, I'm a chess player by hobby. Oh, fun. And they built, now they build these computer programs that can crush AI, you know, yeah. the best human chess players, but they use neural networks and, and that kind of, but once you built these neural networks, nobody knows how they work. Unlike these old fashioned programs, these things, they teach themselves how to play. Yeah. And they kind of um, construct themselves in a sense. But once they're done, they're so complicated, nobody, nobody knows exactly how they're doing what they're doing. And that makes me think that the human brain is probably a lot like that. 
is going to defy any attempt to come up with any kind of simple explanation of, of how it works. Yes, I agree. <laughs> but one of the many things I, I look back and I see that when I was a child, I was actually even sitting on the floor playing with blocks. Mm. I was actually certain things that would fascinate me, which I now realize was sort of inklings of deep philosophical questions. I, I remember building things with blocks, the wooden blocks that we had. And I was thinking, you know, could you build a robot, you know, like in the movies? And then I thought, how would you build something out of blocks that has conscious? You know, I try to think, I can imagine building a machine and I tried to build things like you roll a quarter in and something happens, you know, but yeah, I tried yeah. to, how do you go? How would you go about it? Of course, I was thinking in terms of wooden blocks. How would you build something that had a mind? It's still to this day, I, I, I think that this is, uh, when you think about it, consciousness and not, you know, many famous philosophers, some of whom are atheists will say, and I, I would argue, even something as basic as consciousness, like that a dog might have, a dog has, is not something physics can explain. Mm-hmm. And I don't actually think any purely physical explanation can be had for it. It's a profound mystery. And you work in neuroscience, are getting to see that up close and personal. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. Faced every day with the void of the mystery. And, and it's amazing how deeply dependent each and every one of us is on it for our existence day to day. And it should be, if we're being reasonable, like a ceaseless cause for gratitude and wonder. We've just become desensitized to it. So it's really beautiful. Wonder is the word. I mean, I think that's the thing that links one of the things, two things at least, that link science and religion together. One is a sense of wonder. Yeah. And I think some scientists actually pains me to see the ones who think, unfortunately, the ones who fall into rather simplistic and reductionist views like materialism, some of them think, well, we have it all figured out. Mm. Oh, we know the consciousness is just emerges from neurons and, and that it's just the details that have to be worked out. But we know, we know how the answer is going to look. And I think they've robbed themselves of a mm. sense of wonder. And um, the other thing is a sense, uh, a belief that all things uh, make sense. I think this is one place where a Catholic belief and, and a scientific mentality coincide. Both are deeply convinced that everything makes sense. Yeah. And not everyone in the world believes that, you yeah. know, a lot of people. Uh, but, but that's where I think we have some common ground with even the most atheistic scientists is they do retain the belief that there's an objective reality and that the reason can make sense of it. Yeah. If they held that conviction, it could lead them to God eventually. Amen. A manifesto for scientific work by us <laughs> Catholics. I love it. Absolutely. Thank you. And thank you for joining us today. We're nearing the end of our time here, but it's okay. been such it's been such a joy. One of the things that we do like to close every episode with is a weekly challenge. So a way that our listeners can put into action whatever truth we have talked about and contemplated in conversation on each one of our episodes. Um, So is there something that comes to mind in terms of something our listeners could do this week to learn or put into practice the unity of, of science and faith? Well, maybe go to the astronomy picture of the day and contemplate one of those pictures, you know, and, yeah. you know in a prayerful way. Give glory to God for the the amazing, <laughs> the, the remarkable universe that we live in. Amen. Yes. One of the benefits of uh, scientific work in the age of, of the internet is we can all benefit from the hard work of these scientists. Right. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Um, 
The other thing we like to offer on every episode is a, a media recommendation. And our media recommendation for this week is one of my favorite books. It is a memoir called Lab Girl by Hope Yaren. She is a geobiologist, and this memoir is essentially the account of her journey into and through science. And it involves a lot of uh, personal trial, but you really see how clearly she's sustained by her love of the created world. It's captivating, and while she's not Christian, I think this book really helped me see in a new light God's presence in the created world and and my own vocation as as a scientist. So I'll post the link to that and everything else that we've talked about on this episode in the show notes. Well, thank you, Steve, for joining us today and know of our prayers for you and your ministry now in your time of retirement with the Society of Catholic Scientists. I'm sure if our listeners have any questions that they can direct them to us and we'll pass them on to you. Mm -hmm. Um, And for all of our listeners, know of our prayers for you this week. Thank you for joining us today, and we'll see you next time on The Pilgrim's Soul. 